everyone, and thank you for listening to Recovery Live. I'm your host, Liz Stanislawski. You probably know by now this is the podcast all about recovery, where we talk to alumni, family, friends of those in recovery, just anyone who's been impacted by addiction and the journey to recovery. And today I'm with Alex. Hi, Alex. Hey. He is the executive chef at Stillwater's Men. Well, first, Alex, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. We don't want to get um, too much in the weeds, but just kind of your story from um, addiction to recovery. Addiction to recovery. Um, you could probably go on for hours. but uh, yeah, yeah, we'll keep it short and sweet. Not, not too unfamiliar with a lot of the stories that we have. Started in early teens, smoking pot and, and stuff like that. Um, psychedelics in high school and stuff like that but the when it actually started getting out of hand was or first semester in college when I had this freedom to do whatever I wanted and that was the first experience where drinking and drugging was an everyday all day thing um first arrest happened then too and probation sort of got in the way of the the drug use so drinking became a, a replacement for that and that's when the alcoholism really just sort of took its grasp I guess um, from 19 to 25, I was working in restaurants and it was just commonplace, or at least the way I saw it, that drinking and drugging was just a day to day all day. And as long as you could stand up and flip the burger, you were fine. Um, 25 was when I got sober, the restaurant I was working for closed down and I went out and tried to get a, a big boy job. I started selling cars for about 10 days and quickly realized that. Uh, my drinking and drugging was not, <laughs> not acceptable in like the common workplace. And uh, so that's when I checked myself into Cumberland Heights, actually, a little over three years ago. Um, and ever since then, it's just been a, a beautiful gift. I now work for Cumberland Heights, work for Stillwaters. So that was a, an interesting change because I hadn't even heard of Stillwaters when I first checked into Cumberland Heights. But yeah, not nothing out of the, nothing really uncommon with the story of my drinking and drugging. It just sort of slowly grabbed a hold of me and by the time it was too late like I was already way way too deep to get out of it myself. Entering treatment was that your decision was it something that was kind of pushed on you by family and friends? Oh uh, when I <laughs> when I called my mom and told her I, I needed to get in, get into treatment because I couldn't uh, couldn't do this anymore she was like I've been waiting for you to tell me about this for about 10 years. Because mm. that that had been a conversation that multiple friends and girlfriends and family members had had with me, but it was just treatment was always like that. Like it, for some reason, it was like uh, like the last straw ditch effort. And in the back of my mind, I never wanted to get there because I didn't want to quite internally admit like, okay, maybe this is a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Like I didn't even want to like I'd give that thought a second thought, you know. But yeah, it was like an ultimate sign of like failure or surrender in my head for some reason. And I finally got there. And I was like, I don't know what else to do. I, something. We just got to try something, you know? Mm -hmm. So a lot of your use was happening in college. So, you know, I know a lot of people drink and experiment with drugs right. in college. So how did you kind of determine, ah, this isn't regular college behavior. I'm a little bit <laughs> well, well, yeah, exactly. So like early 20s, like that's all I thought it was. I thought I was just like this. Uh, this is what all my friends do. This is what everyone around me around me is doing, um, drinking and drugging and, and all this other stuff. And what what happened, though, is when I graduated college and when my friends graduated college, they got 
their lives going in the right direction. You know, they, they started getting engaged. They started getting good jobs. They started buying houses and, you know, the whole social media curse, you're sitting there looking at them like, how are they able to do this? And here I am. I like it. I never grew out of it. Friends and family and all those other people were able to sit there and they were able to go out and start having like, you know, adult jobs, I guess. And I just couldn't ever set the bottle down. And, mm-hmm. and by the time mid twenties came along, it's just like, okay, yep, this is, yep, I'm, I'm in, you know, like mm-hmm. this is it. And, uh, yeah. So that's why it was just like, I need to do something differently because mm-hmm. it stopped working. The night before I got sober, I was sitting in my car staring at a handle of a uh, handle of whiskey, just uh, with that, just staring at it because it didn't work any for me anymore for me the, I, I couldn't drink enough to get as drunk as I wanted to. And that was the next day was when I decided to find it. And I've, <laughs> I found that bottle of whiskey about nine months sober in my car when I finally got it back and just like, remember that whole full circle or that, that experience of sitting there the night before, just staring at this thing. And I remember cracking the top nine months sober and dumping it out and yeah. still having just that, like the, just the sheer freedom from it, you know, like the smell was a little weird, you know, cause I'm like dumping it out. I'm like cleaning my car. I didn't know what else to do with it. I'm like, I'm just dumping this thing out, Yeah. but just to, like relive that experience of where I was like nine months before, which it was pretty surreal. Yeah, I bet. So, um, so cool. You're the executive chef at Stillwaters for men. I was out there probably a month or so ago and Alex cooked lunch for us and it was the most delicious thing Uh, I've ever eaten. (laughs) Not even lying. I felt like I was at a fancy restaurant. Um, for those of, uh, our listeners who might not be familiar with what Stillwaters is, can you kind of explain how it's different from traditional treatment program? Um, from the traditional, my only experience with the traditional treatment is Cumberland Heights. And so the difference between Cumberland Heights and Stillwaters is it's, it's just this, this beautiful piece of property tucked in the middle of some, some hills in West Tennessee or what I call West Tennessee. You know, you drive past the deliverance banjos and there's, there's Stillwaters, <laughs> right? It's out in the middle of nowhere. And so it's, it's like this oasis, right? You just drive in there and you have no expectation of like what's around this corner. And all of a sudden you turn down this driveway and it's just beautiful piece of property. And you're just, out there and all it is is a it's a bunch of men who have done the same thing that they're teaching and talking to you about doing there's not as much um experiential groups as we have out here there's no like let's try to move a horse around and all this other stuff it's just we're taking a look at the steps we're going through the literature mm-hmm. we present we present groups in a, in a format where it's just raw emotions and we're just sitting there and really talking about the issues at hand and it and the beautiful thing about it is watching somebody from day one to like six months or three months or 45 days, just the drastic changes that happen in in these men's life. It's just, it's just such a beautiful thing to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And you get to be there every day. So (laughs) tell me about, um, how you got the job at Stillwaters as a chef. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, this was my, one of my first like real big, big God moments in the program. I was, I was probably about five or six months sober. So I've been in treatment five or six months at this point. And, um, part of Stillwaters, the, they have a few different programs. So I'm in the work program, which is the, the, the third of the final programs. And they allow you to take weekend passes. So I'm going to make amends with my father. First amends I've ever had any experience doing. 
So I'm talking to my sponsor. We're learning what to say, how we're going to, you know, go about it and this, that, and the other. And at the end of it, my sponsor tells me, says, all right, and if they ask you to do anything, it's pretty much you're going to do whatever they ask you, except if it's a ridiculous demand. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm out in Utah with my father. He, me and him went to, he took me skiing on my first weekend pass, which was awesome because it was nice to get out of West Tennessee. But so we're out there skiing or whatever the whole weekend. I'm pushing off making these men's. I'm just so nervous, so nervous. I can't get, get by to make them finally, you know, get the, the courage to, to start making these men's. And I'm talking to my father and it was great. It was a beautiful moment. And then it comes the, what can I do to make it right? And, uh, he says, I know you've been out in treatment for six months and you've got another, you know, two or three left, but you can stay out there a total of six months in the work program, which would take you up to a year. I want you to stay out at Stillwaters as long as they'll have you. And I'm like, God, look at this. First amends I've made, they're already asking me to do something ridiculous. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, exactly. And uh, so I, I, I call my sponsor and you're like, you'll never believe it, man. He asked me to do something ridiculous. He wants me to stay out at Stillwaters in treatment for an entire year. <laughs> and he, my sponsor goes, well, uh, the, the timing, the timing was just the most bizarre thing. He, he says, Alex, Miss Teresa, who was the, the lady who had the job before me, just got killed in a car accident. Oh, my gosh. And they need your help in the kitchens out at Stillwaters. And, and it was just like. It was the most, I have never felt emotions like that before because timing, coincidence, which if you believe in coincidence or not is for each person to understand, but the way that God works in my life, it was just a really, it was a difficult thing to understand because I knew that I was in the right spot and I knew what I needed to do in that situation was to help Stillwaters with their food because of the things they given me, I had a sense of ownership or pride or, or whatever you want to say. So I get back to Stillwaters and at first it was nothing more than me just helping them do orders and all this stuff. Tyson came out because he had experience in the same position before and Heath's down there and we're getting everything going. And, and Heath goes, you know, I need a, I need a real chef. And I've worked in the restaurant industry for about 10 years now before treatment, uh, running kitchens, um, at one down in Franklin and all over Nashville, just really all over Nashville. And I go, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a chef and I remember him to this day. He goes, no, I need a real chef. And I was like, okay, buddy. Um, humility wasn't something that I had an abundance of. I'm working on it still today, but humility, especially early in recovery was, I didn't have a lot of, a lot of experience. And so trying to go through explaining to Heath that I could, do the job at hand and here are all my accolades and here's my work experience and all this, that, and the other while still not coming across as this boastful person that I used to be was definitely a, an interesting experience. And so at first I did it for about two or three months. And then I don't know if it was lack of meeting them, not having anybody else who could fill a role or they just fell in love with me so much. That's the one I like to think, uh, (laughs) That he offered me the position out there, and I think he to this day he stuck his neck out to give me the the job that I have today because I didn't have the the recovery time or something along those lines to be able to have the position. But he stuck his neck out in me. He believed in me, and ever since then, like it's we, me and Heath have had a really cool relationship because of it. And so that's sort of how I got my job. It was a blessing that came from mm-hmm. a tragedy, you know, and. 
Miss Teresa, for the people who don't know her, was the epitome of a Southern grandma. <laughs> Big hair. You walk in, she can just see if something's wrong with your face, sit you down, get you a snack, and just talk, you know? Mm. And uh, I thought to myself, like, how do I fill such a huge role? How do I, how do I, and the answer was I couldn't. So I took what she, the positive characteristics that she had that I could replicate. And I tried to bring that loving, caring, nurturing environment in my own little way. Because I could never be a big, big haired Southern grandma like the streets. <laughs> right. you know? But yeah, so that, you know, she was the role model and like, how do I f- fulfill or how do I replicate what she brings here? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that, that's how my journey out at Stillwater started. Day, uh, you know, whatever the last day of my eight months out at Stillwater's was, was my last day there. And the very next day I started on as a staff member. I didn't get to go home or yeah. nothing. It was just like from one day to the next. It was like resident to the staff member. It was, a, it was a really cool experience and I've been there two and a half years. Wow. Yeah. So how does, you know, cooking for all of these men that are going through their own struggles kind of helped aid in your recovery? Um, so I have a really unique job in the fact that I have no employees. So I'm an executive chef with nobody underneath. And so what that's given me though, is I now have a two groups of men who come in my kitchen and learn under me. So the turnover in the restaurant industry is already bad enough. My turnover is every three months. So by the time I basically get them trained, I get to send them out into the wild. So I'm sitting here teaching men that have never, never cooked before. Now there, don't get me wrong. There's a handful of, uh, of people that come in who've worked in the restaurant industry before who come in there and we explore and I push them to new boundaries and we teach them different stuff. And that's really cool and all, but we also have people who come in 1920 all the way up to, I don't even know how old the oldest guy that I've had work back there with me, probably mid sixties and teaching them how to cook. And some of them for the very first time, because they've never made a grilled cheese. You know, you ask them, go get a head of lettuce and they come back with a head of cabbage <laughs> and all these other things. So it's, it's turned into a cool and we don't have experiential whatever uh, out there, but that's sort of one of them for them because it's this unfamiliar unfamiliar territory for them that they get to go out and find themselves and deal with their own struggles because they all look different in a kitchen to different people. Some people are worried about, uh, you know, their insecurities and this, that, and the other. And then the other people are very boastful and look what I made. Mm. And you're like, you grilled a hot dog, buddy. <laughs> like, <laughs> congratulations. But like, let's calm it down a little right. bit, you know, but it's not, it, but yeah. So getting to shape and help mold and teach, and maybe it's just, to some people, maybe it's just I got to teach them how to make a grilled cheese for the first time or some tomato soup or maybe give them some life skills to get out there. But in others, I see an actual growth when it comes to leadership and all these other stuff that they're able to take these skills away from in a kitchen. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the really rewarding parts of my jobs is that. I bet. Yeah. I bet. And I remember last time when I was at Stillwaters, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, you, you had worked in the restaurant industry and just how substance use and uh, abuse yeah. Yeah. runs really rampant. Can you kind of talk about that culture and what that was like? Sure. I, I think that's one of the, that's where it like, I, I, it's like one of the, is the, the chicken or the egg theory, right? Like which came first or were you at, were you addicted to the lifestyle or were you already like a borderline alcoholic and you just happened to so fit into this? Cause 
my first job, I, I got my first job in a restaurant, I think like 18 or 19 years old. And it came, it wasn't the career path that I thought, but that I thought I was going to have, but it, culinary school and I got into that and I get into this kitchen and there the adrenaline, you know, there's a hundred tickets printing out and it's just constant going, going, going. There's yelling, there's screaming, there's fire, the adrenaline of everything's going on. And then you get through that big, you know, busy Friday night and afterwards the camaraderie of setting down that first staff drink, you know, the, the chef would come back with a pitcher or two of beer and you're sitting there. It's like you, you survived the storm. Everybody's happy and go lucky and this, that, and the other. It was that lifestyle. And then afterwards, you know, you go and grab drinks at the bar next door because they closed after you and this, that and the other. And that's sort of what started to take a grasp of me. Um, I said earlier, I struggled with the uh, humility and stuff like that. And the arrogance, the, the just the sheer boastfulness and arrogance that's allowed chefs in the restaurant industry was one of the things that was very tantalizing to me. Right. They're these like superstars. You see these people walking down the street or on Food Network or or this, that and the other. And they just that they have this ego about them. And that that was what kept driving me in that direction. Right. The struggle for being content was always uh, one of mine in active addiction because I would get published in a magazine or I'd get a job as an executive chef or I win a culinary competition. And they were very brief, awesome moments. Right. But it was always what's next. Where else can I be an executive chef? What's the next, you know, am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And it was that, that lifestyle that, that really took a hold of me more than anything. And growing up, you see these, these rock star chefs, you know, drinking and drugging and we're out partying all night. We're working 16 hour days. We do another two hours of drinking at the bar and four hours later, we're waking up on a booth to do it all over again. You know, it was just something, something about that. And, I don't think I could do it now, but when I was 19, 20, early 20s, that was it. Like, that was, I loved that way of life. Yeah. Um, Okay, so Alex, we also, I wanted to talk to you about, um, you had this great experience um, with a man who you saw panhandling that you knew, and you helped get him into treatment. Talk to us about that experience. And you were like, at the right place at the right time. Yeah, yeah, I mean. God had me in that place at the exact time that he did. There, I, I can't deny that fact. So before we talk about that, I got to give you some uh, some information before it uh, about it because that's the story in itself is beautiful. But what really blew me away was the timing of why I was downtown. So I'm making amends to a former business associate of mine that I had walked out of uh, out of a business venture with them. And uh, so I'm making amends to them years later. I didn't know how that was going to go. It ended up turning out to be a, a good amends process. But I ran into them about a month ago at a cooking competition, which I won. By. All right. Well, there's my <laughs> humility, Alex. Humility. Okay. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I run into them at this cooking competition. And they tell me about, you know, that I've seen their new business and they were talking to me about it. It's Music City Seafood. Shout out to them. They're awesome. And uh, so they invite me to their open house. They're doing their first ever event or and they have all these vendors that they that they sell. It's a wholesale seafood and meats um, company. And so I'm at the top floor of the George, George Jones Museum downtown on Broadway. I brought my mom. She's a chef. We love doing these foodie things together. And so we're up eating scallops and foie gras and lobster for a couple hours having a great time and 
no sooner than we left, we we're going to go meet my dad who works downtown too, because it was burger week. So we're going to go hit up a couple of the downtown burger weeks and 20 feet outside the door. This is Stillwater's brother who I'd grown really close with. He had come and helped me cook in the kitchens and this, that, and the other sitting on the side of the side of the road, you know, begging for change and our eyes locked and he just smiled ear to ear, you know, gave him a big old hug. And first thing he said was, who sent you? Mm. I was like, huh? I was like, I'm just walking the streets, buddy. And, and that, that didn't, wasn't as impactful until I thought about it later. And well, who really sent me, you know, God put me there, but that didn't, that wasn't the first thing that came to mind when he said that. And, uh, so I asked him, I look at him, I said, what are you like? What are we doing? Like, what do you, what's up? He's like, you know, I've been living on the streets, been homeless for a little bit. This, that, and the other, his face was caved in from, you know, smoking crack or whatever he was doing. So I asked him, what do you need? He's like, what do you mean? I was like, do you, do you want to, do you want me to take you, get you, a, you know, some change of clothes, a shower, a warm meal and drop you back off? Do you want, you know, do you want to go to a meeting? Can I call some people and get you back in treatment? What do you want to do? And he goes, yeah, like I've been talking to Cumberland Heights. I need to get back into treatment. I said, okay, grab your stuff, get in my car. He's like, huh? I was like, like now, like if you want to go, we're going now. He's like, okay. So we grabbed his stuff. I looked over at my mom and said, oh, I've got, <laughs> got something I got to take care of mama. She was a little confused by the whole situation. I had to come back and explain it to her a little bit. But she, once she understood what was going on, she gave him a big old hug and said, but yeah, it was a cool experience. And so sent my mom off and he pops back in my car and make a few phone calls on out here. And I call admissions over at Cumberland and they said, yeah, we've been trying to get a hold of them for a day. We haven't been able to get, get a return call or whatever. I said, okay, what's up? They said, you know, insurance, this, that, and the other. And we, we got it arranged to where he could come back. And, uh, so got him, got him that shower and change of clothes more for myself than anybody else. Cause, uh, it was, a it was a hot month. He was, uh, he was ripe and, uh, dropped him back off at, uh, Cumberland Heights. Got to see a few more of my Stillwater's brothers working here. And it was just a really cool, a really cool experience. It was a really cool gratitude check to just be at the right place at the right time. And to, um, just to be as, you know, the happy and usefully whole. And most of the time I find that like being usefully whole is what makes me happy mm-hmm. and just being there and God showing putting me in the right place at the right time to help this guy out was, it was just a really cool gift and how all of everything was just sort of intertwined and it didn't make any sense until it happened. And you're mm-hmm. like, all right. All right. God, I see what you're doing. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. Yeah. you know, That's great. I love that story. Well, we've gotten to the part in the podcast um, that I know you said was going to be a little bit of a trouble for you. It, <laughs> yeah. it is for everybody. It's the big two yeah. where I ask you to summarize your greatest struggle in recovery recovery and your greatest triumph see the problem with the greatest struggle is like no matter what moment is going on like that's my greatest struggle (laughs) you know because we have this i have this idea of like permanence not normally when it's a good thing because whatever but like when i'm in a when i'm in a struggle it's going to be like this forever oh my goodness i can't do you know what i'm saying it's just this permanent state of whatever um but that's what motivates me to get out and do something about it. You know, the whole pain is the touchstone of all spiritual growth type of type of mentality. Um, the greatest struggles that I've really come to deal with, and I'll, I'll group them together because it's not a singular event is, is death and overdoses. They, they are, 
and it play and ultimately when I deal uh, deal with the emotions that come about them, it, it always has to go back to humility for me. I know it's a topic that we talk about frequently, more frequently than I have it probably, but that I don't have the power just as much as I don't have the power to make a sober person drink. I don't have the power to make a person who's going to go out again stay sober. I can sit there and have my hand reached out and talk and this, that, and the other. But it's those phone calls of brothers and staff members and, and, and friends and all these other people that you hear about either going out and overdosing or going back out or, God forbid, dying or whatever happens to them. That, those, are, those are my greatest struggles. Those are my, my greatest struggles because as a staff member and as a, a member of the, the a community, you grow close to these people. You know, they, they become friends, they become family members, they give you a call every now and then, and you grow and build these relationships with them, and then they're gone. And that that's what I, that's what I struggle with. We had a, a string of months last year where a handful of people, it was just one after another after another, and it just beat me into the ground. Mm-hmm. And almost to the point where I just sort of wanted to, like, call everybody or send a Facebook message or whatever. Just like, all right, like if we just need to postpone it for a little bit, like I need to rebound yeah. this one before we can yeah. handle any more stuff. I was almost like a hermit there for a few days of just like, I don't even, those, those are my greatest struggles. Mm-hmm. But to couple with that, like it, it, the industry that I work in, that we work in, those struggles are the, I mean, not the price of admission, but they, the, they're the, they're, they're going to happen. You get all these beautiful stories, all these people. You know, I have a buddy who just got accepted in med school that I was with out at Stillwaters and all these other just awesome, awesome stories, you know, marriage, kids. I was at a baby shower yesterday with two people and, and recovery and all these beautiful, beautiful stories. And those are those are the it's the full spectrum. You know, you, you have to take one to get the other. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think those are the those are the things I struggle with most. Yeah. So would you say your triumph then is to see the success stories or? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, My greatest triumph is I actually have a reason to like live. Mm -hmm. Like life actually has like meaning to me now. I, I never, I never really had like towards the end of active addiction. I never really had much stuff that actually like caught my eye or like made me actual happy or, or anything maybe less miserable. But now I actually have genuinely like really good days. And when like six or seven of them string together in a row, you know, maybe two weeks, I've been riding a pink cloud for the past two or three weeks, you know, and it's just been absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. I have a beautiful relationship with my family today, my mom and dad, you know, like these are, these are things that I never thought I would have, right? I have a job that I've had for two and a half years. That's the long, by far and away, the longest job I've ever had in my life, right? Mm-hmm. These triumphs, yeah, I just, I have a beautiful, beautiful life now. And mm-hmm. it's one that I want to continue living, mm-hmm. which is just a nice place to be. It's just a really nice place to be. That's awesome. Is there anything else, Alex, you want to add um, before we, we end for today? Yeah, sure. Here's, here's one of the things. <laughs> All right. Here's one of the things that I, and I'll make it brief, that I, I try to tell people, and it ties into those big two, is that I have a design for living today that is both fair weather and foul. 
throughout my entire life, I've had fair weathered friends and they were there when my pockets were fat and things were going good. But when active addiction and the last, however many months or years of it, the amount of people who returned my phone calls weren't there. What I have today is that no matter if it's good or bad, I have a program that's solid as a rock Mm -hmm. and I have something that can help me when I'm at those bottoms, when I'm at those struggles, when, when life isn't throwing me anything good, there's good in everything. But for the sake of this, I have, I have something I can do about that. And, um, that's what attracted me to this program so much mm-hmm. was fair weathered friends. Don't, don't interest me. I need something to help me through those bad times. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We're so happy to have you on the Thanks show, and we're me. so happy to have you cook food for us. Yeah, we'll from time come out to time. And eat again <laughs> soon. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and be well.